0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the November 21st, uh, the November 21st QPSC. Um, Welcome and a reminder that uh, our convention is to move directly to closed session after roll call. A couple of comments about closed session in follow-up to last month's session. Closed session is 11:57 protected, and there are uh, very specific guidelines about who should be involved in the room. So those are those at the specific invitation of counsel, at the specific invitation of the QPSC, at the p- specific invitation of our quality team, and at the specific indication of our med staff representation and our med staff leadership. Okay. If you're not directly involved in a case uh, or, or the credentialing process, we kindly ask you to return back to us in open session. We anticipate that this closed session will probably last around 35 or 40 minutes today. So with that, um, let's go to roll call, please.
1: Trustee
0: Here. We have a quorum in that. We will move to closed sessions. So all the things I discussed before, if you're not at specific invitation of the quality team, general counsel uh, the medical staff leadership or, uh, or um, the QPSC itself, we ask you to kindly step out. We do have a number of staged items, so we'll be, we'll, we'll be bringing people into the room as appropriate. Council, is that acceptable? Okay, great. Um, All right, everyone, welcome. Uh, we're back here at the uh, November 21st QPSC. We just closed closed session. and We're back into open session and we'll move to uh, item b the consent agenda may i entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda
2: please
3: so moved um
0: second
3: Uh, second
0: okay I'll, (laughs) i'll i'll open it up for discussion item b1 uh the minutes um Please note that the agenda says the minutes from October 22nd, 2019, but the actual minutes are from 10-24-19, which is how the actual minutes are. It's not a big deal. It was just on the agenda item. Other than that, item B1 looked OK. B2, there are five system policy and procedures. Mm-hmm. Item B3 is a privileges form from the Department of uh, Medicine for Nephrology Privileging. Mm-hmm. And item B4 is a little bit of a heavy read. It's the Alameda. And AHS medical staff competencies. Any I questions? Have a, I
4: have a couple. Of, actually, on page forty-four, which I think is the. the um,
0: it's a nephrology. The nephrology. Yeah. Mm.
4: It, there's a misspelling. Unless nephrology is the word. Nephro nephrology. No. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you. That's on page forty-four, for your keen uh, reading, Dr. C. Jensen.
4: Yeah. No, that was. I just wanted you to know that I did. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any other comments, Prestige? trustees? Trustees, with, with that, all in favor of approving uh, the consent, to, uh, consent agenda items B one through B four?
4: Aye.
0: Aye. Opposed? Abstention. I'm just
4: going to abstain because I wasn't at the meeting.
0: which minutes? Mm-hmm.
4: October twenty. Ah. The minute. So
0: yeah. okay, you can still approve the minutes. Okay. okay. <laughs> Got it. With that, <laughs> we will close out item B. And we will move into item C, which is uh, uh, the Chair's uh, discussion, which we uh, always take pleasure on in this. Um, I chose two articles as a prelude to what was supposed to be a scheduled action item, uh, the patient affairs landscape. Uh, Just to recall, we started having this discussion about patient affairs uh, in the October 25th, 2018 QPSC, where we sort of discussed the role of the patient voice at AHS. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, some uh, we had, the staff had to pull this agenda item uh, late last week. We had a lot of stuff going on, so it is not on the agenda item. So the good news is, uh, the bad news is we're not going to hear about the uh, patient affairs landscape at this session. The good news is we're going to gain some time back. So with that, uh, there are two articles. The first is five ways healthcare organizations can amplify the voice of the patient, which is a nice little quick read uh, coming out of Forbes. And the other one was the prior article that I gave to everybody in October of last year, which was uh, a, a roadmap for patient and family engagement. That's a, a little bit less of a good read, but it, it, it raises some questions about where the voice of the patient can go. And, and this, this, what is supposed to be uh, a, a metric uh, brought forth by CMS, uh, which is what I asked Alvecchio and Gassan to actually investigate, is this something that we have to comply to, which is what they're going to investigate, uh, raises the question of actually having patients at the board level. And again, just for the dialogue. I just want to bring forth the five items of the uh, article, uh, how healthcare organizations can amplify the voice of the patient. And then we can have a little brief dialogue and then kind of stick and move. First, um, number one, make senior leadership accessible to all patients. It's a big move. Uh, the the, 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 the author of this article uh, do you know this author yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, i know of him. no no yeah, i don't know yeah. One it personally yeah he, he, no he, uh, he's a, he's uh he he writes a lot yes, <laughs> yes. i'll say it like that um he uh, he advised in, in this article that he gives out his email uh to to his patients uh to, to the patients um, in the too. system um uh one one can debate uh uh the utility of this but it's again we're here to have dialogue on it the second item was proactively engage patients in informal settings, and they chose the word informal settings because, uh, which begs the question as to whether we put a, a patient on, on bodies such as this, because they, they the suggestion is that the informality, luncheons and the like, uh, create a, a more psychologically safe environment for the patients to express their voice. Something curious for us to think about. Third require non-patient facing organizational leaders to connect with patients regularly. Um, this, is, this is kind of doing the gemba, what, what what we talk about as 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 we go on our journey uh, uh, as a healthcare organization. Uh, make helping our, our leaders who don't touch patients every day to see what, what happens behind the scenes. I think I think there's I think there's personally I think there's value to this as well. Fourth, explicitly use patient input to drive program design. And this is sort of one that goes to one of the questions about our patient affairs landscape. Do we do things like this in the system? I think we do in pockets. I just don't know if we do them uh, in an organized fashion as a system. It's an interesting question. And fifth, tell patient stories often. I I know that Dr. Ballard sort of takes this one on at the MEC and tries to to have a story. Sometimes we get uh, our docs to bite on it, right, Kelly? Sometimes we don't. Uh, But whenever there's a patient story, it, it, it does seem to offer poignance to, to what's going on. So those are just the five ways in which uh, uh, this healthcare leader asserts that, that we can amplify the voice and just wanted to open, up, uh, open it up for a little bit of brief dialogue before we move on. Now, Becky. <laughs> <laughs> did you tell? Yes, yeah, I, 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 like, I like the point. I hit I like pause, that. though, because I, I, I wanted like to see
5: it. if someone else wanted <laughs> to jump in. Uh, so, one, I want to start with an apology, uh, actually, so I appreciate the diplomatic way in which you uh, uh, acknowledged, and maybe the team did too, um, uh, why we uh, requested to get a little bit more time on the, uh, the sort of organizational presentation, but I want to... Um, Uh, take accountability for that. Uh, I stepped up in uh, Dr. Jamaluddin's absence to clarify this with you, and you did respond, which I appreciate, and and I was supposed to coordinate with the team, uh, because there is a presentation that they have worked on, um, uh, but based off of that feedback, I felt that we were not quite hitting the mark in terms of what you were requesting, and uh, just in the frenzy of everything else going on, uh, uh, didn't uh, surface it in time enough to get it ready for this meeting, so I apologize apologize for that. Uh, uh, But uh, that stated uh, I really I actually appreciated uh, such article a lot of the uh, I thought a lot of the uh, uh, recommendations of the five were not um, terribly onerous and I felt like they do get at in a very uh, uh, let's say a um, anecdotal and, in some ways, still uh, robust way, some of the feedback uh, uh, that we could uh, take from patients and use to inform the care we provide and the quality and the uh, experience of the uh, uh, patients and their families. Uh, fortuitously, actually, um, one one something happened to me uh, just about two hours ago uh, that uh, does often happen to me. I got a text from a friend, uh, someone I know in the community, who was sending me a message that, um, there was a patient who had been admitted here just uh, yesterday. Yesterday, actually, uh, and uh, he and his, uh, the patient and the wife uh, were here and uh, asked if I would check in on them. And I have, uh, because I had to finish getting ready for uh, a board meeting. I've gotten an update on them, but intend to actually go up and uh, visit. And I know that they'll be here at least until tomorrow, based off of that update. Um, this is yet another way, but sort of speaks to the fact that uh, in the community, and I think our situation is a little bit different care more in terms of the sort of uh, broad awareness of who the leaders in the organization are because we do so much stuff in the public and it's so public facing. Happens quite frequently and in board meetings I've often shared letters where they are flattering or in some ways uh, uh, critical uh, or constructive in terms of the organization. So I think I love the idea. Actually, and I actually know that the CEO of UCLA used to have this practice of giving everybody his card and had a similar experience as a sergeant which is people are very respectful of that. You don't. Mm-hmm. Some people have apprehension of that because you think that people are going to abuse it and call you for all sundry things, all times of day and night. And quite honestly, it doesn't happen. And I've I've seen that experience both with patients and families when uh, I give out uh, my card. And so I appreciate the acknowledgement of that being a very good way to bring that information back to the organization. Um, We've even had, and I I was surprised you didn't mention, our own employees uh, take the opportunity from their experience to service stuff and we've used that uh, to drive uh, improvement from their perspective of our operations that, whether in ELT or through other forums that uh, permeate out through different business units. In one case we had a patient uh, who was an employee of the organization um, come in for an urgent care visit recently and uh, talk, talk about her experience through check-in, through the uh, room took a picture, uh, I can't remember in that case, another case there was a picture of this case, described quite vividly what was going on in certain rooms and so we've used that to drive performance as well. Well, um, the lunch idea I love, we do it informally with staff now, but we don't do it with patients. Uh, at least I don't do it with patients, but I do know that uh, advisory committees there that we have various who do, and that was in the report as well. So uh, I think there are a lot of great ideas here, uh, some of which I think we do do, in a, in, and we'll share uh, with you um, um, when we revisit this, uh, but uh, obviously, always room for improvement. Uh, The idea around the board uh, piece, I kind of leave to you all. I think there are some uh, various uh, perks to that, uh, uh, and then some challenges, some of which are noted. I'd also say if, if, you know, we should surface the idea that board members can be patients here too. So so it doesn't preclude, it doesn't have to be a patient in this sort of um, uh, typical sense of a patient and a board member being separate, but that board members can get their care here like leaders in the organization can too. And that sort of uh, checks both boxes as well. So I invite that and encourage that as well um, um, so that that voice and that perspective is lifted not just as a provider or a trustee, but also as a patient uh, in the organization as well. So. Uh, just my thoughts, but I really yeah. appreciate the discussion. I'd love to hear how other people yeah. uh, thought or what they took away as well. Trustee yeah, Hernandez.
3: Yeah, when I looked at this, mm-hmm. and it does have a section on how this can raise uh, awareness for health equity issues, um, I think that we should look at what are the opportunities to include the voice of the patient in a multitude of areas, I, I, I just know logistically this is a really tough thing to do. Um, and uh, I can't uh, emphasize this enough, if our senior leaders are, you know, so overwhelmed and so, just, you know, constantly behind a desk, um, it gets very difficult to see what's happening in the shop floor, right? <laughs> and so the more we can make it part of a routine, uh, I've heard of another uh, system that is doing equity rounds, meaning you know case studies where a unique situation occurred, what happened, why did it happen, and the voice of the patient is included in that because it's a vulnerable population or a unique situation. I'd love for us to be able to you know incorporate that on a regular basis, not to make it you know an occasional exceptional situation. And so, you know, I trust that that's something that everyone can explore. But um, if we get so far removed that we're never encountering the patients that we serve, except for rare occasion, then it, it just, we're not informed. That lived experience that they have with us is very instructional and it offers a lot of opportunity for improvements. Mm-hmm. So,
4: and, um. Trustee Johnson. Oh. I would um, follow up on, yeah, you're absolutely right, Um, Trustee Hernandez, and but this goes, I think, and I say this from experience, this goes for the board as well. The board um, really is far, far removed, much further than the leadership, the executive leadership, except for Trustee Paquette from the patient experience, and um, I, as an elected person in Alameda, I tend to have a little more visibility and it's a smaller town, and I definitely and certainly hear from people if they have had a good or bad experience because I'm just, they see me at a meeting or something and say, oh, wow, well, yeah, my mom or my brother or whoever, I was just me to Hospital. Or um, other things, as Delvecchio knows, whatever it might be. So I, I think that this is really good, a good way for the, that the board should think about our interactions, too. And I, I think of um, Mr., what's his name, the um, gentleman from um, Park Ridge, who mm. sometimes attends our meeting, and he, really does. He's kind of the, the liaison. He talks to, to people, his his um, residents and his friends, and they have their little committee, excuse me, not little, but they have their resident committee. And that is another good way to share information. That can't happen, of course, in acute care because patients aren't here for that long. And that brings me to another concern, I guess, that I have. Things like a lunch or um, or those types of interactions would be challenging. Our patients aren't Going to say, oh yeah, I'm going to go back, you know, get a call and go back for lunch. And then there's HIPAA issues as well if you're calling and following up with patients. But um, so I, I, those things are just things that I, that occurred to me. But I'll, the other, finally, I'll just say that caregivers aren't mentioned at all in this in this article. And those are the people that are often, especially in um, a facility like ours, they're the people. If, if we're treating more vulnerable and more frail um, people, then they're caregivers are the people who might also be informed and be having opinions and be able to share their their information in a way that might even be better than the the patient themselves.
2: I want to to add. Yeah, and, you know, I think when we look at scenarios, um, sometimes always having patients in our... Um, environment it also brings a level of you know just artifice in the in the interactions too so we need to find out how we might go to the community and listen to folks as well so we are having like voices of patients or ex-patients and families through being in their uh, comfort areas as well as in ours. so that could be twice but one of the things that in the leadership that uh, you know I keep hearing and we brought this up at the board to the and I don't want to volunteer to Kim anymore but just the fact that the CFO of any organization should be kind of very closely tied with the quality as well so that you're making your fiscal decisions are not made in isolation of like hearing what it is so mm-hmm. though it might not be the direct patient voice but just here we get such a sense of that so Having the operations leadership, or even in this committee, is good, and we've said that about our uh, board folks too. That maybe it's time for some of us to rotate out, so it gives cha- a chance to like the um, uh, the you know chair of the finance and things to explore where else they might want to be, because everyone is on two committees. So if we might we might want to look at that as well. so, um, so the finance and quality should really be very closely tied together.
6: Yes, sir. Uh, Dr. Jane. I under, um, under-emphasize the value of a visit from you, uh, Del Becchio, for example, because I on occasion um, at San Leander Hospital, for whatever reason, when James Jackson was the chief administrator there, I would ask him to stop by a patient's room and a patient came from very far away or a patient was unhappy or very happy, and he was always Uh, willing to do that, Mm -hmm. of course, because he was very engaged. And I cannot tell you how much that mattered (coughs) to these people when you see them later. You know, the chief executive of this hospital came by to ask me how things were going. And and it it didn't even matter what they did, just the mere fact that they were there and sat down for five minutes and and engaged the patient. It's dramatically important to to those folks. And you may feel like, well, I, you know, what am I going to do in terms of the specific care of this patient? It means a lot to these yep. folks mm-hmm. when the boss swings by. Fair hero. Um, mm-hmm. It really does. Um, so mm-hmm. doing it on occasion is a pretty easy thing to do, um, and it really makes a difference. Okay.
3: Maybe one thing we might consider for next year is um, board rounds. <laughs> you know, maybe just one day out of the year. Uh, you know, selecting the different sites, spreading ourselves out, and say half a half a day. You know, just check out what's going on and connect with people and say hello. You
6: know. And I think it needs to be an individual person going into a yeah. room because it can't be yeah. like rounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i sorry. I don't think that's I in used that. I that the wrong way. Normal. Sorry. I, I, <laughs> didn't, I know that's not what you meant, <laughs> yeah. but I think that it, it's remarkable how, mm-hmm. how much that makes a difference yeah. um, to the perception of a facility.
4: Yeah. And to, if I could just say, of yeah. Course. No, absolutely. I mean, and to that point, that's why I think, in Alameda at least, it's, uh, it's kind of they, at least at our hospital, they have often, patients often feel like they can talk to the leaders, including even the elected leaders, but more often the leaders on site. Um, uh, who the the nursing and the and the administrative leaders because it's such a small site. So as you get bigger, unfortunately, those types of the ability to do that gets a little bit harder.
7: It does.
2: And Dr. Ingenio, because of my proximity uh, to the hospital, I'll be you know I have a very big Busy workday, so it doesn't strike me to be more proactive about that. But I'll be happy to a uh, nudge at any time, or to even set up something where once a month or something. I'm just there in the hallway sure. and m- meeting, so I'll, I'll put that on you my know, our, to-do our list.
6: Always has people in the hospital pretty much universally. You know, you find any of us or mm-hmm. me, even if I personally don't have somebody there, I can always get you in touch okay. with some of our patients or the hospital. Can I'm sure to.
2: I'll do that.
0: So I'll end this section with a patient story. uh, I got one. I have a million of them. So I want to tell you about a patient who tried to access my service line, the GI service line. This patient needed a colonoscopy for a variety of reasons. Let me say that uh, for uh, a mix of uh, issues, including operational issues and access issues, she was not able to get to us in a timely manner. And she grew so frustrated with our system that she chose not to come to us when we thought we could get her in. She then chose to go to another system, at which point uh, they diagnosed her with a very, very serious condition. And I wouldn't have known about this if this patient didn't feel comfortable enough to reach out to our CEO and told our CEO about this. And I'm going to tell you, there's not really a day that I don't think about this case since I heard about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, so our senior leader uh, was involved. Delvethieu and I didn't speak directly about it because Ghassan and I did. And, and, and on the root cause analysis of this, you, you just see where the Swiss cheese happened. Uh, and and uh, it has had a tremendous impact on me personally and, and on, on our divisional operations and how we think about things. And so I, I think this is how we get better as as we talk talk about these stories. Mm -hmm. And we let our seniors, executives, who can can wield tremendous influence on how we see things, how we do things, play a role in what we do here every single day. Uh, Because I I literally think about this patient every single day. And she's just on the list of ones that that we've failed. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'll close out this section. And we will go to item D, the med staff reports. Um, Dr. Marzuk, do you mind opening up? Uh,
8: not at all. Uh, as, uh, um, the main uh, uh, aspect that's been uh, during the last month is obviously EPIC implementation, which overall is proceeding uh, nicely with, uh, you know, multiple uh, minor hiccups and uh, as uh, as everyone gets used to the system, things that uh, are discovered in terms of lab interface and where to find things and various orders, those are all being worked on and uh, and people are becoming more comfortable and obviously uh, with its uh, action there's been tremendous improvement of the continuity of patient care within the system as well as outside of the system where we can easily access uh, patient's records. Um, the other couple of issues, again, where, where our GI coverage is uh, something that uh, uh, is being worked on uh, for, because uh, you know, so we don't have essentially 24-hour GI coverage or someone in-house, uh, which I know Dr. Jamaldin Uh, working on. Same goes for, well, podiatry is a different matter. We don't have, uh, uh, our podiatrists will see the patients, however uh, uh, they are uh, not seeing the patients that uh, are either uninsured or uh, under Medi-Cal. I don't know if if an actual uh, agreement is being I proposed Those patients that are acute will have to be transferred to, uh, uh, to Highland or where uh, the, the podiatrist would be able to take care of them uh, uh, as well. Uh, then uh, an issue that uh, came up uh, rather uh, in the last week or two was uh, the NSC Geology Group. Uh, the the contract uh, uh, there is expiring in the end of November, and uh, uh, the transition and the continuity for anesthesia services is being addressed uh, uh, with uh, Dr. Jamaldin and uh, and uh, the head of anesthesiology at uh, AHS. So we have coverage, uh, Lisa, as far as I know. Uh, through the end of the year, and I d- I don't know uh, after that what the status is. All.
0: So you don't feel like you don't have clarity on the future of anesthesia? Is that right? Right now.
8: Got it. Okay. Uh, it's I, and still being worked out. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I think the, that's it.
5: The contract, yeah. But I think uh, th- I think we have a plan through December. We're right. working on the longer longer term, yeah. Wait, wait, the
0: contract. Over there. Yes. Yes. No, Do- no, no, Dr. J. D. Mike, sure. is that okay, Dr. Yes, of
8: course. There?
7: So uh, uh, let me just uh, comment about uh, the GI. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a gastroenterologist who is going to work with Dr. Bouquet group, and we stationed be uh, stationed at Alameda Hospital. Uh, she has accepted the uh, the job. I think right, Dr. Bouquet. Yes, so she has. She, she, she gave notice to her job, so we have that recruitment happening. Uh, urology we continue to work on um we have tomorrow a candidate coming and we have another you know potential contract to the community physician to cover for urology and we continue to cover at least one day with the hp uh, partner group it has been very difficult to recruit in urology uh, for two reasons uh one uh we do not have robotic surgery and uh, Almost all of the young graduates they want to have access to robotic surgery. I have explored this with UCSF with the previous chair, and uh, I didn't get much interest. I'm going to re-explore <laughs> it again uh, to see what we can do, and then we can start also to envision having robotic surgery in our system in the future. Because uh, you know, more and more, if we have technology that we don't have. Accessibility to it. We are not going to recruit the the, the young, uh, you know, graduates. We had actually uh, graduates who were interested, but then the lack of robotic surgery was very explicit in the refusal of the of the offers. Uh, going to. Uh, so we talked about urology, we talked about, I still have talked about anesthesia. There is one more service. Podiatry. Uh, podiatry, I yes. Surgery. I want to clarify the podiatry. Uh, we have uh, two community physicians who cover the hospital. Uh, I remember we negotiated with them uh, a contract to pay for a medical patient at a certain Medicare rate as activation for fee. And uh, you know, I I didn't know that they didn't accept those offers. So verbally, it was amenable, and that happened probably about 18 months ago. And I'm looking into this while we are uh, developing our Alameda Health Partners Podiatry Group, which we have consolidated into one group uh, under under the leadership of uh, Dr. Amy uh, Splitter. Um, I mean, one one understanding that I have is that the Medicare rate, included in it a visit post-operatively in their clinic and somehow I, my understanding is that they do not want to the patient to come to their visits uh, visit them in the clinic so i'm trying to have a system where we can bring them to to highland or or open maybe uh, a clinic of podiatry in uh, in uh, marina wellness uh, uh, under ahp so i'm looking into this uh, currently and I do not want the patients to be transferred. If there is no podiatry, we will go to the patients. I told Ms. splitter that you know we will go. We will try to do everything we can to avoid this transfer. As to the anesthesia, uh, uh, about a year ago, I, I, I uh, uh, connected with the anesthesia group and expressed you know, uh, on behalf of Alameda Health System that we'll be renewing the contract. Uh, I told them about a year ago, and they were very happy. And we were uh, really negotiating uh, in a very uh, good way, agreeing to every single term. And uh, uh, and uh, the, the, the contract actually was voted by this board. Uh, but uh, then I learned uh, just uh, like a month before uh, the expiry of the agreement that the head of the group does not want to renew. Uh, there was really no much disagreement. We're going over the redlining of the, of the agreement. It seems it is her decision. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for her. She has uh, served there for 15 years and uh, you know i uh, uh, was able to sit down and work on the transition plan so where we are right now just uh, you know since last week what happened we have already uh, opened positions in alameda health partners for the anesthesiologist who wants to continue to work uh, with alameda uh, hospital uh, some of them as are uh, like working there on an hourly basis or service as needed. Some are working on a part-time basis. Some very few, one or two on full-time basis. So uh, our head of anesthesiologist uh, is working on this. Karen Black, uh, the director of operation and the Almeida Health Partners, and myself. We have been working like almost every day. So as of today, uh, uh, Karen has uh, communicated with the with the physicians and they are willing to continue working. As to Dr. Crystal, the head of the group, she's going to help also for the next three months, but she does not have interest in long-term employment. So uh, uh, I am confident that we will not have interruption of services, and it's going to be part of the Integrated Alameda Health Partners Anesthesia uh, with San Leandro and and Highland. And what about the
2: GI
1: Uh,
0: community status? So I'll put on my I've been working with Dr. Jamaluddin. We are hiring a new physician who will then allow our, our Highland-based group to rotate to Alameda Hospital. We're estimating go live on this around March 16th uh, to maybe March, between March 16th and March 23rd. There will be full-time coverage at Alameda Hospital sometime in the mid-spring.
8: Full-time meaning 24 hours? Uh,
0: mm-hmm. There will be Monday through Friday coverage and then the off-hours call we're still working on because covering covering multiple hospitals 24-7 becomes problematic yeah. for a four-person a, for a group.
4: Huh. So, comments? Great. I have a Trustee Jensen. Dr. You, um in um, discussion of the podiatry service, you said that there's a potential or you're, you're evaluating the potential for having podiatry services at the marina clinic. That would be the...
7: So uh, it's it's not easy to open a clinic. However, if this is You're the reason... You're
4: talking about the primary care clinic, uh,
7: Alameda? Uh, no, we have a specialty care which is largely oh. orthopedics and the rehab the wall, injections uh, in Marina uh, Wellness uh, Center. Uh, it's at, in the same uh, area. Uh, it's area. Uh, yes. it's yeah. cream at the, with the, the Wellness center, center and yes.
4: the, yeah. But right. there's also the... I thought you were talking about the primary care
7: plan. Yeah. Clinic which <coughs> yeah. So
2: this is for the follow-up visits. is the one. I'm sorry. This is for the follow-up ones, post-op follow-up. If
7: uh, yeah, if uh, uh, see, uh, if a patient is operated and they leave the hospital, we need to see them post-op. And if the physicians are not willing to see them, uh, I want to ensure that we have a process uh, to bring them uh, into into clinic, whether to Highland or anywhere like we have we have obligation to see those patients so uh, I am looking at it with uh, with Amy splitter I mean to go back and speak to those physicians and say you know if you are available and you're close by see them we we'll pay you for seeing them and do not worry about their follow-up we'll take care of their follow-up so one I want to make sure that this is legal from any start perspective and if it is feasible and two I want to ensure that the patient gets the care so that's what I'm working on thank you Dr. Marzuk, uh, does that provide some
0: clarity around the specialty landscape at Allenby Hospital? Yes, it does. Okay.
8: Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. I, I'm sorry I didn't agree with you before no. this meeting. I've since okay.
7: last week. Okay. Thank you. Any other
0: uh, comments on your report, Dr. Marzuk?
8: No, that's uh, wraps it up.
0: Wonderful. At at your last meeting, you know my, what question I'm going to ask you. Um, um, you. Uh, you noted your uh, uh, priority issues as number one, specialty coverage, which we've just been discussing. Number two, the transfer center, and number three, Epic. Uh, can you advise about what your rank list order of concerns might be at, at today's
8: meeting? Uh, probably the same. Okay. So although, although coverage. we haven't really addressed uh, the transfer. I mean, that hasn't been as much of a of an issue right now okay. as as. As, uh, as, Epic, uh, more so. Okay. And
0: can you talk to us about uh, uh, your opinions on how the Epic uh, transition has gone for for those I, at in the
8: I think uh, overall, uh, uh, you yeah, know, it has bumps and a learning curve, okay. which is being addressed. And uh, as a matter of fact, we had a, a noon meeting on. Uh, a lab, and EPIC, how the interface of the lab, how to order. There, there are things that that uh, are, are difficult, in, from the laboratory perspective, of how to order or what to what order tests, or when it shows on the lab, and those are being all, all addressed. Okay
0: on the spectrum between optimism and pessimism, where <laughs> yeah. do you think the culture
8: sits there yeah. at Alameda Hospital? After, Obviously, optimistic okay. I mean, this, this is... Not always obviously, but sure.
0: No. Yes, we'll no. that is true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Uh, trustees, any questions on uh, the Alameda Hospital well, Thank you for your report, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ingenio, can we hear about from the San Le- Leandro uh, Leadership Committee? And, Certainly.
6: Uh, uh, welcome. We uh, met at the beginning of the month, and um, I can say there are a few issues that came up, uh, some surrounding EPIC, some surrounding specialty coverage, Uh, when I discussed that first, uh, the issues of neurology, the two neurologists that were on staff resigned at the transition of the medical um, staff merger, and so that's been an ongoing problem. I think some of that may be resolved. We discussed that at MEC um, with Um, expanding the privileges of the neurologists here to help at least cover phone calls and and the like. I think that can be done expeditiously. And some of these items may actually be voted on by the board. I think they were added to the agenda, Dr. Ballard might comment. Um, And so that was one issue. The other, uh, and I I believe, hopefully, that will be resolved because it's it's a major concern of the emergency department physicians um, what to do with the Neurologic problem, um, and I think once the physicians are reassured that they can um, feel those phone calls and advise, then because they have privileges at the facility, that should hopefully help the matters. It doesn't still provide inpatient services necessarily, and might still require a transfer, but that would be helpful. Next is a psychiatry. The psychiatrist that had been covering uh, San Leandro, I think, s- resigning on the 15th of December and Dr. City um, has a plan um, to have telepsychiatry at least to help. Um, They also have a training program set up for the ED docs to put people on 5150 holds. But unfortunately, as I've been told by the emergency physicians, Alameda County is the only county where the emergency physicians can't release them from a 5150 hold. And there are a number of the ER physicians that work in Contra Costa and South Bay, and it's not a problem, but that tends to bog down the ED, and that is a recurrent problem of sometimes five or so of the 12 beds are held with patients on 5150, and it it really impacts the throughput. And so they're working on some telepsychiatry, hopefully, to do that. Um, There's a new psychiatrist being hired, I believe, that will come on next year. And that transition of uh, the end of the month may be a little problematic, but I think that will hopefully be worked out. And yeah. there is a plan. they were going to have a privilege. Uh, it's unclear whether you need to delineate privileges for telepsychiatry or not. Theres some, there was some debate at MEC, and maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Um, but privileges are privileges, whether a psychiatrist talks to you through a monger or not. I, I, I'm not sure if that makes it big difference but that's being worked through and they'll probably be a privilege that that comes to the to the, uh, the board um, at some point in the near future um, not a meeting next month and that was a concern because this needs to be resolved so those two were one issue were issues I, there, a lot of the meeting um, circled around uh, epic and I won't get too granular here about the very specifics um, uh, in my opinion is, all is not rosy. I think it can get there, but um, the, uh, for the day-to-day functions of taking care of patients, I think it's fine. It's to me, it, from what I hear, it, it's impacted GI dramatically. It's impacted OR efficiency dramatically. And I always come here and whip up my dashboard, dashboard <laughs> and organization last month. I'll read the numbers. This, I didn't set this up. This was set up here, so I'm not sure what the data is. 907 reported cases, 19% first case on start time, 26% overall case on start time, if turnover, procedure, and some other things. But I mean, those are very concerning numbers. And it's it's it impacts a lot for the, the, the one GI physician who's been a stalwart of the facility, and we know him for many, many years, long before I joined the thing it's been a nightmare for him quite frankly i mean you know he can has these super long turnovers he can't get the cases done there because it takes four times the time of doing yeah. the an endoscopy to get the patient in the endoscopy room to get it through that process and so he's had to greatly curtail that and i and i think that really needs to be worked on and addressed because this is the guy that does the gi coverage for the whole facility he's one person right now the other person yeah. is on a leave of absence uh, for a number of reasons and so uh, there, there's work being done to try to address the throughput because that throughput is very much the same as the operating room it's it's, it's done in the same area and it's part of that, that issue um, and so I think there's more training going on, but I just there haven't been results. I mean, these numbers are the same or worse than they were last month tonight I Actually,
0: last month I thought you said 0% on time. Oh,
6: that's actually true, yes. Yes, you
0: <laughs> said 0% on time Yeah,
6: so it's so. 19%, that's true. 19%. The on-, yeah. on time starts were about 23%. That's right. No. So that's not true. I listened some them. On. That's Did right, <laughs> but that's good. Yeah, zero for the starts. Um, so Do you know
9: what the times were pre-epic, though, as a comparison? So are they markedly different, or is it the yes. same as pre-epic? Yeah, I mean, the first, case, the, to look at. The
6: first case generally started on time, and that wasn't usually a baby. Do, do we have actual data for Well, oh, I'm sure that exists, yeah. 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 That'd
9: be interesting, I think, to, <laughs> to have a look yeah. at Yeah,
6: and, and you know, the, the average turnover procedure, that actually improved, because that was over 60 minutes, I think, last time. Now it's 46 minutes, so that's, mm-hmm. that's getting, that's improving. The one thing that I, I find this a little hard to believe, but it had day of surgery cancellations, 154. That's a dramatically high number across the system. If that's for true. what
5: time
6: period? One month. This says organization last month performed cases 907.
5: You're, are you are you looking at San Leandro or the entire organization? It says organization. Yeah. I, I yeah. And 907 S- cases is not San Leandro. That's, <laughs> be the entire I, I, that's what I thought. But yeah. you know, I, I still want to say sorry. Um, um, i continue to do this i look at the dashboard on a daily basis uh, yes, as want. those who have gotten <laughs> messages from you me know um, it, it is still a work in progress i said this last month so i really just want to caution uh, yeah, it may not
6: be accurate data no it's not i won't
5: tell you i will be very clear it's not accurate data uh, it is getting more precise because the, the issue or the challenges have been tying the workflow with the tracking of the data uh, which requires a discipline from the part of the uh Folks in the organization to be actually looking at the data that's coming forward into the dashboard and tying it to the actual work being performed, which is not a real-time type of experience because people are busy doing the work and then have to come back and corroborate it. So, um, it is. It's going to take a while, and and it's. Um, It's not particularly uh, comforting, I know, uh, for people, including myself, that that is the case. Uh, uh, And trust me, I'm pushing folks to make sure that's good. But it's so much, it's it's so diffuse because we're on Epic now everywhere. uh, And the challenges are different in terms of how the data. Uh, Is captured and presents in multiple areas where the same data is being consolidated. So that could be in our EDs where I look at throughput times and uh, how many patients are waiting and the different sort of indicators of uh, the different pieces of the throughput. Same in OR. Uh, and same in uh, some of the clinics. So uh, what you're doing, uh, I want to just be clear, I think is absolutely the right thing to do, particularly from a leadership perspective, which I very much appreciate. I'm just offering the caution for everybody now that we have to be careful about the fidelity fidelity at this point because we're still working through And my
4: sense
6: is it isn't quite this bad, but it it definitely is not as good as it is. Could be and or
5: and i totally agree with you on that been, yeah Uh right, yeah, no, no, there are true examples of where that data is as bad as it may uh, be just on an aggregate basis. so
6: that's the issue there's some other issues and i don't really have to get into all the details of that that cause delays related to consents and stuff that went through the mec here that hopefully will be worked through it's just processes that kind of they're excessively onerous that no one understands why they're there. They're not in there in any other system. I mean, hopefully they can be streamlined. Um, so um, those were all discussed. I'm trying to remember if there was anything else on the top of my head, but, uh, th- those were really the main the main issues. Um, you know, we discussed the case that, that um, Dr. Hussain had also gone over a bit at the meeting um, as we discussed in full session, um, and so and I think that uh, you know, furthermore, I personally have still concerns of trying to engage the some surgeons that were doing cases that I see lower volumes in, and hopefully we can really uh, engage those folks. It would help from an administration standpoint to try to, um, that they were valuable assets. Um, and I think with the new um, beds coming online, I know some of the board members were at the open house, With the new med surge beds coming online, really nice. I think that would be a good opportunity to try to engage us. I know, for example, one of the orthopedic surgeons made, uh, you know, has concerns, and his patients, his elective joint patients, you know, want a private room. Uh, And I think that those beds, and they know they can get it at other facilities, including here, right? (laughs) Um, But you can't get it there specifically because most of them are all semi-private. They're all... So, um, but that may be more realistic, with the extra 15 beds coming online, and maybe a good way to engage him. And with rehab opening upstairs, I think it's a perfect fit for orthopedics, to have the patients, you know, if that person's active there, or their patients are rehabbing upstairs, it's just easy. But those are the comments, my three points
0: that you're going to ask me, I will remind you what you said last time, you only did two, and then Dr. Hussein has some comments, so I wanna, uh, are, you, are you sure? <laughs> Okay, Uh, uh, Dr. Ingenio. Last time, uh, number one was Epic. Number two was OR volume, and uh, I'll I'll quote: there are OR inefficiencies which were massive and unacceptable.
6: Yeah. So uh, let's have follow up on those. So I mean that's getting better, I think, as the staff is getting, and that's expected that that would get better, but still not anywhere near where it it should be. Okay. Um, And uh, that may be even holding back some of the elected cases just because the knowledge of that inefficiency at the moment, and hopefully that will uh, improve with that. Um, the, um, I would probably say, I'd shift it around a little bit. I'm, I, I do have concerns about this neurology and psychiatry coverage, especially for the ED, and that's the one I'm getting the most noise from from the ED physicians, they're very nervous about that. So I think is there's is psych. Yeah, there's a reasonable plan to try to get that. And the telepsych is perfectly acceptable. It's unfortunate, you know, the, the the ED physicians just tell me they're just so frustrated by not being able to release these holds on patients, and they just sit there because they're waiting for a psychiatrist, um, when they could do it in every other place they, they were. Trustee so. Jensen.
7: Um, that's something that I wasn't
4: aware of, and I and that's, you say a county, Alameda
6: County only. County. County. Oh. That's what I, I mean. I'm not a psychiatrist, but that's what the. So in
4: anywhere
6: contra Contra cost uh
4: can staff. ED can staff
6: ED clarify
0: on this? Is, is this it's true? true? It's in, uh, uh, so your your the assertion is ED physicians are not allowed to release 5150. Is that the assertion? Right. Except I just
7: that thailand Except that. So Highland. Highland.
0: Island, EV, so that so that would go against
7: the concept that this is a county. think if you have a psychiatrist them. I think the
5: designation, the ability uh, to be a 5150 receiving and or lifting facility is a county by county designation of okay. the uh, County Behavioral Health Services, for each county is allowed to make the determination for who, in terms of clinicians, are able to to, to do that. And. My understanding, though I'd have to corroborate this, is that most counties, most counties, I, I couldn't speak to all, do uh, limit uh, that uh, distinction to um, uh, psychiatrists for the most part, uh, of which there don't tend to be a lot that are employed by facilities, so it creates a challenge and a barrier for uh, facilities that don't employ psychiatrists uh, to have that uh, ability. Uh, but there are other places where the county can make the distinction for whether it's a psychiatrist or a person on staff, or if yeah, they can have even, because I think Washington Hospital has a different distinction for a, a behavioral clinician that's not a psychiatrist being able to lift with to 150s, but I'd have to check on that. But I think uh, you're, you're right in the sense that I believe it does present challenges. I just don't think it's exclusive to Alameda County. Dr. J. Um, I,
7: I just want to comment about uh, like a number of issues, if I may. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I didn't attend the leadership. I think I was either way. I, okay. But about the neurology, I mean, this is uh, absolutely true. We are taking it very, very seriously. Uh, I've been working with Dr. Baden and Dr. Liz Cahill and Dr. Tonagin about uh, structuring a teleneurology uh, contract with UCSF. We are hopefully very close to to do that, and that will be also not only for... Lamina Hospital also for the system just to have a tele-neurology to answer to the uh, ED physicians and the hospitalists on urgent need for neurology, and that will be extremely helpful. Um, uh, I know that Dr. Tonabin and uh, myself, we have been working on telepsychiatry. Maybe uh, Felicia can comment a little bit more about, about this, uh, but I just want to uh, uh, comment about the 5150 and San Leandro. I mean, San Leandro, we have realized early on Uh, probably about a year ago that the number of 5150 has been increasing and uh, our nurses skill and workflow in the emergency department uh, need to be addressed and we have been addressing it you know how to handle the 5150 and uh, with the emergency department physicians and the nurses uh, and the leadership at San Leandro we have really been paying a lot of attention even You know, we are are talking about structural change in the ED just in order to be able to uh, contain those patients without disrupting the patients who are not 5150. So we have really been addressing uh, it in a very, uh, uh, like, uh, like, systematic way and trying to see what are the gaps, how can we handle this. And at the same time, uh, you know, when, when uh, John George is on a census call, if these patients need to call to John George, how to really contain these patients in an effective way. Uh, so that's, that's my, my take on this. Uh, you know, about the epic, uh, I mean, these are valid points. When we have community physicians who make their living by doing procedures and by seeing patients, and they are affected by the flow it can become very frustrating and disruptive for them. So again, we're taking these things seriously and we see what we can do to help. You know, when these events happen with our gastroenterologist there, we really send a SWAT team there and we, we try to, as much as possible, uh, support. I, you know, I, I did today my first procedure on Epic. I have been seeing patients, but again, you know, there is a learning process. No matter how much you learn it visually or in the classroom when you are with the patients, it's different. So, so we will continue to work on this. Dr. Tonabin, do you want to comment yeah. about the telepsychiatry? Sure, yeah. I,
10: I actually was just meeting with Dr. Siddhartha about it this morning. Uh, this morning, um, and he had indicated that he's working on uh, the, the privileging aspects. That um, He also indicated that we actually have um, iPads and stands purchased, and that uh, what we need to work on some of the interface, the technical interface um, of the devices. So I reached out to Mr. Amy this morning by email or afternoon, actually, um, so that um, we could connect with him on what are the exact steps that we need to, to complete in order to then have a pilot. Because um, Dr. Siddhartha said that from the physician, physician staffing perspective, he has the staff to launch a pilot, we just need to complete some of the technical aspects um, to, to make that occur. And we'd likely pick one hospital to have the pilot in and then go from there. Trustee Hernandez. I have a lot of
3: concerns about 5150s being decided through telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Um, So my question would be, first of all, what does the data say Mm -hmm. about the um, Mm -hmm. efficacy of -hmm. that type of program? That would be my first question. Mm -hmm. I think we should look at data from other facilities. Um, Number two, I think it puts us at enormous risk um, because um, I'm just thinking of, that patient, that that whole population, that that is truly very difficult to assess. First of all, mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing if the person came in and simply had been like off their medication and now they're on their medication and they're much better. But if it's something more uh, challenging, j- let's just think about that out loud. The risk of one of our 51. 50 patients being dismissed after a telemedicine consultation um, and then going and doing something heinous. What does that do, right? So so I'm a little concerned, and I I just would like to know what the data might say. Yeah. Yeah.
7: So, you know, certainly this is a concern with any, you know, telemedicine. There is a a sense of... But uh, telemedicine is happening between a physician and another physician. Uh, but also to talk about the data, I'm not, uh, I, I don't have the data offhand. hand, but this was piloted by the county at Washington Hospital with, uh, with very uh, good results. Uh, now when we put telepsychiatry in place, am I correct?
5: Uh, I actually don't think uh, the tele was at Washington. The, the tele-psych was at um, St. Rose. Oh, St. Rose. And it's with, actually, uh, the, the former head of psychiatry for AHS. Was uh, it St. Rose? Yes, at St. Rose. Oh, I yeah, I Rose. oh yeah. okay. So, they so I
7: don't know Rose. the data about this, but there are safeguards about okay. those, those concerns that are put into this process. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 5150 is... Uh, is a big group of patients, you know. Yes. So, uh, yeah. so, so there are like range. some safeguards that are put in place uh, to to ensure. So, you might have like uh, the. People who are intoxicated, right. and plus also there is a lot of information yeah. that is now shared about the background of those mm-hmm. patients that will help to safeguard mm-hmm. uh, this this uh, concerns that you Th- have. That
3: that's specifically my concern. That 5150s yeah. can be a huge right. population of all kinds of
7: right.
3: individuals, and so my my request or concern about this would be there may be some additional thresholds Mm -hmm. that you may want to set for that consultation. Because you're right, if it's somebody who's intoxicated, I mean, that's a different story. Someone who's had a whole range of psychotic episodes and, you know, whatever. That makes me a little bit more nervous of it being a um, a tele-psych consultation because I think in that case you can well imagine the person has not seen the range of behaviors over time that someone on site has seen. Now, you hopefully are communicating about that, but just uh, that would be my request, yes, just what, what are those thresholds for certain categories of patients that I think pose the greatest risk? We may want to say if they're in this particular um, diagnosis, tell them, psych might not be appropriate, it might be more appropriate for an in-person mm-hmm. review. That, that's all. So if I can
9: comment to that, that's exactly how it, it's typically structured, so it, it is more of your um, quote-unquote benign, um, you know, Easy to, diagnose, easy to diagnose, you know, just the same way you wouldn't do a medical diagnosis over a t- neuro, teleneuro, um, you know, on something that was more severe. There, there is definite criteria of these people would fit for telepsych. And then that really, I think, in my past experience, becomes a physician decision in the ED to say, okay, these three people would be appropriate for telepsych. The rest of the population that we have right now would not be, and we'll wait till psych comes on board or until they clear or whatever that is. So um, I've experienced it where there's definitely criteria. Um, that they are the only people that fit the telepsych model. So, That's
5: great. right. So, so uh, just to mm-hmm. add a, a, a bit more to that, and, and not from a direct experience uh, basis. So, I appreciate that, Janet. Uh, the little I've, I've, I've read about this, that that is your concern is valid, and I think underscored in the psychi- psychiatric um, or psychiatrist community uh, that there is a sensitivity to those right. those patients who were um, kind of along that spectrum. Because I, I I would appreciate that they think that. Irrespective of whether they are um, you know, viewing a patient uh, in um, in sort of person versus um, um, uh, telephonically or uh, otherwise, uh, that risk that you're talking about exists anyway. You know, uh, and um, uh, you know, it's it's I don't know how much is increased by this, but certainly a concern for that uh, uh, being that. And and there is a consideration that this approach is uh, still um, better than patients who come into an emergency room without any sort of psychiatric uh, consultation um, uh, by someone who's experienced in psychiatric medicine to be able to uh, lay eyes or hands it physically uh, there to kind of assess the patient, yeah. Thank you. No, great, great point. My
0: compliment compliment to this question is, um, first, if it is indeed true that each county can decide how they execute release of 5150, uh, that's an important question. Two, if Alameda County, specifically Alameda Health System, carries a disproportionate amount of 5150 for the county, my larger question is: Is there a role for advocacy on this issue? And and questions: Where have we gone on that? And I'll just leave that as a question. I don't know if we have a direct answer, but something for us to think about because this seems to definitively uh, impact our operations. Uh, so
7: I, I have my personal view and expertise living in New York City about the structure of 5150. I think New York City was much more uh, advanced with collaborating with the uh, police department in terms of uh, having <coughs> more programs that really goes and intervene with uh, with social uh, psychiatric social worker on site and try to prevent the patients from coming to emergency room this isn't prevented totally but uh, you know i have several stories uh, you know about like intervening in a more effective way without using a clinical tool which is the emergency department bring in patients with behavioral issues so that's I mean that's a problem you are putting a patient who has behavioral issues next to a patient who might be having a heart attack or who is in septic shock and you want the same team to take care of them and you want the health system to create safety guard and the police walk out of the emergency department so we really have to sit down and uh, you know think in terms of policies how we can address these issues we have probably in uh, we have the highest number of fifty one fifty in California. You just. And I think to your point, there is a space for advocacy.
5: And historically, our, our um, as a system, our advocacy has been sort of um, a little bit more parochial, so I say, in the sense that uh, the model, which was you know, has been lauded nationwide, which we were celebrated for nationwide, uh, was the Alameda model, uh, which was that everything came to John George uh, if a patient. Yeah, it came to PES, and no other facility was um, designated as 5150 uh, uh, designated facilities, which allows them both to place and lift uh, 5150 so patients could go to all the other medical emergency rooms to be medically screened and cleared, but, but they ended up having to come to John George in order for that 5150 to be assessed in either... Uh, executed or lifted, uh, uh, and that was a model that other counties around the state and in the country were saying, oh, we need that type of setup because so many emergency rooms were challenged with this notion of what do we do with the medical patients that's next to the psychiatric patient and the humanity of a psychiatric patient sitting there for such a prolonged period of time without receiving services. Um, or without receiving services that were designated for the psychiatric need that they had, So uh, we have to think about this in partnership with our county yeah. behavioral health to say, you know, what, what is the continuing need and the best way to address this uh, as a county, not just as a system, because we struggle with it. And we did get the designation for our two facilities to figure out how we le- leverage our uh, existing psychiatric base, which is robust now to actually help us internally And as we mentioned before, um, um, another entity came in to pilot with the county doing it at another facility. Now the question becomes, how do we look at this throughout the system where we are still challenging Alameda County, I believe continues to be the county with the highest number of 5150 initiations in the state. And probably the, uh, I don't know,
2: the lowest amount of preventive um, behavioral health.
5: Now, now you're getting rid of
2: that.
0: I'm not going uh, ahead. So uh, I apologize, Dr. Ingeniu. So number one for you was psychiatry Thank and neurology. Thank you for inspiring this conversation. Do you have a number do you have a number
8: two?
6: Yeah, yes, I do. So everything I think is number two, the inefficiencies thereof. And I've got to throw in my pet peeve, the emails I get that say that my ticket is resolved when it's not. And, and then I respond back and say it's not. And I get your emails not recognized. But they just emailed me that thing. So how can it not be recognized? you know, and I have to call and open another <laughs> ticket because they close it because I can't respond to say, you didn't fix the problem, right? So. And I've, d- I've just did this again today
5: and opened two tickets that I opened a month ago, right? So I'm going to give you a personal contact. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> really? no, I mean in all sincerity, I apologize that's happening to yeah. you, and but we're so, going to try to make sure right. that. So happen. I mean, and,
6: and they're, they're granted they're not just how to use it; they're more big picture questions yeah, sure. of so you know this is yeah. stupid. <laughs> it should be done you know in a different, slightly different way to make it more efficient. So so,
0: so Dr. Ingenio, same question that I posed to Dr. Marzuk. These are the epic. On the optimism pep- the pessimism scale, where do you feel that the culture sits at, Stanley? I I'm, I'm that optimistic,
6: that. but okay. not as optimistic as he is, just because <laughs> of the, the time okay. that this that's mm-hmm. going to take. I know it's it's going to ultimately smooth out. It's okay. just taking time, and that's problematic. So that's number two. And I, I you know, I'm trying to encourage dialogue. That's yeah. what you want. So I'm succeeding Love here. Dialogue. Uh, but, and number three, I think, would be just engaging the, the, some of the physicians who did operate more there to try to get them to operate more again there, because I think that's a, a win-win for the system. You know, I, I honestly haven't checked recently, but is there a Blue Shield or Blue Cross contract? You know, that still has been in limbo, as far as I know, for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, and that's, that's one of the issues amongst others. So Do we have that. an answer to that question? I believe
5: the yes, we do have a contract. Oh, great, it's, yeah. uh, the contract may be uh, exclusive to a facility, which is their call, not ours. I think it's exclusive to um, Alameda and doesn't include San Leandro because they didn't decide or agree that they needed San Leandro Hospital in the network. I think that was the issue. That's the problem. Okay.
6: Yes.
0: Okay. So, Dr. Engineer, number one, neurology and psychiatry, number two, epic, number three, or volumes of HIV your community uh, surgeons. Thank exactly. you for your report. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ballard. Hi. Thanks for your patience.
9: Um, the uh, we approved in closed session all of the privileges um, in terms of the nephrology coverage. We. In terms of the nephrology coverage, one of the um, consent agenda items is number B3, which was our privilege form that allows us to expand the services from our current neurology team to San Leandro campus to try to fill in patient care gaps, which we've also approved here today. Thank you so much. Um, The medical staff competencies are being revised to... Um, meet what will be 2020 expectations from all the different regulatory bodies um, being someone who is routinely late on my competencies I'm excited to possibly even get in get in the game earlier and get it done since I now know what's coming at me um, but but uh, our med staff does a heroic job at trying to make sure that everybody's competencies are done in a timely manner that we stay above water in terms of our expectations for our own education and, and um, Exhibiting our knowledge bases about these certain statutes and pieces of education. Um, there were no uh, non uh, physician contracts this month. There was during our MEC open session a robust discussion around Sapphire, and um, it was it was entertaining for me to watch us go from last month where we were ooh ah ooh ah. To and, and clapping our hands and doing happy dances that existed, to well, this isn't working and that's not working, and yeah. how do we fix this? And
5: that didn't take long, yeah.
9: So, <laughs> the, the trajectory of those two meetings being a month apart was, was a little um, enlightening to say the least of what we really have ahead of us. And um, I will say that um, I admire Dave English because I could not. Handle the amount of crosstalk that he deals with on a regular basis about this issue And I I also think that his level of commitment to seeing this project through and making it successful is unmatched and Maybe you need to get a 25 a lifer. Is that what you guys call yourself? Lifers the people who have trained here for 30 years mm-hmm. I trained here now work here and um, Maybe it takes getting that kind of person to actually take on this job and not just throw up their hands in despair at some point and walk out. But he has shouldered an enormous amount of responsibility and still is level-headed when people bring up things that I would just probably throw the towel in over. Um, but he fielded many questions yesterday about things that we were starting to see. We, we actually problem solved. We had an action item meeting yesterday, which is, which is you know, my first love is process analysis and improvement, so we actually did some action items yesterday in open session, and we usually just report and vote on stuff, so it was really cool that we were coming up with some some little action plans that need to be followed through on. That being said, um, I'm still just absolutely ecstatic that we have EPIC, we have Sapphire, and that the people working on it are working on it, and I have no doubt that it will be more and more and more of what we hope it will be as the next quarter rolls through and we go into, what is it, the...
5: Stabilization and optimization.
9: Stabilization optimization phases of the project. So it's, um, I think everyone's still encouraged and happy, and, and we know that there's growing pains, and we see them just as that, and, and just are kind of looking at this, like, bring it on, we're ready to, to move into the next phase. That being said, um... THERE are NO OTHER HUGE ISSUES THAT WE DISCUSSED IN OUR OPEN SESSION uh, THAT REALLY WOULD REQUIRE REPORTING HERE.
0: EXCELLENT. TRUSTEES, ANY QUESTIONS FOR DR. BILAR? EXCELLENT. THANK YOU. YOU KNOW THE QUESTION, DR. BILAR. Right. AT YOUR LAST uh, <coughs> uh, REPORT, you, YOU RANKED YOUR TOP CONCERNS IN ORDER AS, NUMBER ONE, DIVERSITY, NUMBER TWO, RELATIONSHIPS, ESPECIALLY BETWEEN POSITIONS AND THE EXECUTIVE TEAM, AND THIRD, EPIC. Uh, can you update us on your your rank list ordered list of concerns?
9: Well, uh, thank you. Um, the, the The diversity issue, we did have the first meeting of the diversity steering committee, which was very inspiring and exciting that we're finally starting to take on this work. Um, I will say, from a diversity standpoint, I've been thinking about it a great deal lately, and. And I said in open session yesterday, because our our um, topic for this quarter, which is now rounding out, was equity and equality. And we were going to kind of discuss that in our two-minute moment that we have created in that forum. So we, we talked about equity and equality a little bit in terms of how... Traditionally, we fall to race or gender or sexual orientation as aspects of diversity. But the reality is is that there are, are even more and more le- levels to diversity um, that I've begun to you know, think about as I've been more exposed to the work being done. And the vignette that I gave is that I did the uh, diversity champion training at UCSF because I'm a UCSF faculty member, and I spent an entire weekend day um, doing exercises with other faculty, and there was an entire section around age you know, too young, too old, in the middle. You know how people with different age groups are, are um, interfaced in the care care arena, and and how people who are in different areas of uh, caregiving, from a you know delivery side, are. You know, interface with expectations that they have. So, I've i really started to think that, you know, we have a a really huge job to do in terms of diversity and in terms of equity and equality and trying to really um, be robust in how we address it from all of the angles because they're all important differences that we need to embrace. Yeah,
2: and so many of
9: them intersect on the Exactly, numbers. exactly, and and make it make make the fabric of, of our patient population so wonderful and and interesting and and challenging at the same time, so um, yes yeah, so I think I think from our standpoint it it helped me see that diversity probably still needs to be at the top of the list, and our definition needs to be very inclusive of what diversity actually means okay. um, Thank you. second will be relationships until they're better um, and I will say that I say that in that way, with full knowledge that we are so much better now than we were a year ago. Hmm. And I, you know, I have, um, you know, I have a a very long-range view of how this world has been at, at Highland and at the AHS system level when it became that. And I understand all of the things that have built the walls that are there. And I've gotten to know people on both sides of that wall much better these last few years. And I absolutely am convinced that we have the tools to tear the wall down. We just have to swing them in a way we don't hit each other. But we can take that wall down, and that's going to be one of the focuses of my second year of my chief of staff term, is to try to help us swing those tools so we don't hit each other. Because then I have to put on my trauma surgeon hat. Third
3: is Sapphire. Excellent. For all the reasons I said.
0: Trustees, any further comments for (coughs) Dr. Ballard? Uh,
3: Dr. Ballard, I just want to assure you uh, there's a graph that I can share with you that has the layers of diversity that go beyond the initial sort of top five that people see visually. Mm -hmm. Um, The one that I think is the most uh, impactful sometimes beyond those first five that have to do with race, gender, ethnicity, age, ability. Those are the obvious things. The other is whether or not someone's an introvert or an extrovert, and how much that influences their ability to participate in the day-to-day grind of meetings or presentations or engaging others. And so I just invite everyone to understand that, you know, as much as we always think about diversity as those, you know, first five categories that are very visual and obvious, we make 11 decisions about a person in the first seven seconds of meeting them. And those decisions uh, at the far end have to do with friendliness, knowledgeability, you know, trustworthiness. And when you think about those three, just those three, in the patient experience, just imagine how profound okay. the decision about what to do, how to treat, how to help, how to engage can be. It's it's gonna make some pretty significant decisions. So um, the range of diversity is broad <laughs> and it's good to have you discover that. That's thank great. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for being on this uh, doc
0: Dr. Dr Blard came down you, that wall. Chiefs, thank you for your reports. Yeah. With that, I close out item D, and we go into item E. Dr. Paul Barbaria is here, our chief ambulatory officer for, uh, uh, our chief administrative officer for ambulatory. Uh, Dr. Barbaria, welcome. Um, uh, as always, my presume presume that the packet was read. We're striving for 75% dialogue, 25% presentation. It was a very nice write-up. I'm, I'm holding my trustees that they've read your good work, and uh, go for it.
11: Perfect, thank you. Um, so obviously, you know, I want to hit the highlights, but I'm happy to diverge and answer any questions as they come up. Um, we will start with just reviewing. I know these slides are, are painful, so I will mostly just talk, and they're for reference in your packets. Page
0: 154 of your packet.
11: Mm-hmm. Um, looking at our monthly dashboard for the new fiscal year, you will see there are some blanks, and that is because we are still finding where is the data in Epic? How do we get it? How is it valid? Are people using the right? Entry point. So we don't have cycle time data yet, but definitely hope to have it by next month. We were doing manual audits of cycle time during our go-live just to make sure that our clinics were not running woefully behind. And in most areas for the first about probably one to three weeks of go-live, we were running about 30 to 45 minutes behind in clinic. Most of our clinics have now returned to baseline. So that has improved markedly and, and was far better than I think the like hours and hours of waiting time that some of us were worried we were going to have. Um, and pretty much every leader in this room, I think, walked through almost all of our clinics during Go Live to see how things were going. Um, our patient experience scores, you know, still, while well, they are far better than they have been in the last few years, are a little bit flat and so we you know, are really excited now that we have Epic to really take on a much more robust strategy to think about patient experience, leveraging technology, um, our patient portal to improve and enhance that experience improve response time so Holly Garcia who is right there um, just got back from the Preskini conference can maybe share a few words of you know, all of the amazing new planning work that we're going to be doing around patient experience.
0: I didn't know you'd be called up, did you, Ms. Garcia?
11: (laughs) That's why half the team's not here, because they know what's going to happen to them if they show up.
1: (laughs) Did you just come and then look?
0: (laughs) Welcome, Ms. Garcia. We've worked together before in the past.
1: (laughs) Hi, uh, so my name's Holly Garcia. I'm the Director of Innovation and Experience for Ambulatory, part of Paula's leadership team. Um, You know, we we have been trying to get through Epic and figure out. how to make things smooth and and work for our providers and our staff, and I think, from a patient experience perspective, I think the real focus will be on MyChart activation and trying to get as many patients enrolled and using the portal as possible. What we um, often find is patients get frustrated with how to make an appointment, um, calling us to get lab results and those kinds of things, and I think the more we can get them enrolled in MyChart, I think the easier it will be for them to sort of get that data when they want it rather than having to deal with our tough phone system and parking and so on and so forth. So um, I think that's really going to be the the focus of our work for the next six to nine months and then once we get that under our belt we'll try to take off the next layer of the onion and and other activities.
0: Ms. Garcia can you uh, refresh for the the QPSC actually how we execute getting these uh, these, these these patient experience scores. How does this actually happen? How do these data flow to us? How many do we do? That, that Just a broad picture of how we get these scores which populate this chart. Sure,
1: yeah. So um, we uh, partner with Press Ganey, that's our vendor, and we actually send out paper surveys to patients. Um, we, the target is that each provider that's on the contracted provider list would be sent um, 25 surveys to their patients each month. Um, And then we augment those paper surveys by email survey, which is dependent upon having a good email, which is linked to my chart activation because you can't do my chart activation without a valid email. So there's a lot of um, budding and dovetailing up with trying to get good email addresses so that we can leverage and get more responses to the e-surveys since those are not limited. It goes out to every single patient for which we have an email address. So that's how we get our data: is through survey, um, through paper survey, and through e-survey, and then all that goes to Press Ganey. They do all their fancy analytics. There's um, roughly about 30 questions that patients are asked. They range from care coordination to their access to their wait for the provider to how the the team communicated with them and their respect and courtesy. It's a broad range of questions.
0: Can you comment on language of the surveys?
1: Yeah, they currently go out in English and Spanish only. Um, Prescaney had advised us previously that actually there isn't a lot of bang for the buck in sending the survey out in other languages because often family members um, help those patients that speak languages other than English and Spanish are speaking English and Spanish and help their family members complete the survey. That's the guidance
11: we've gotten from Prescaney previously. Okay.
0: Thank you. Okay.
11: I also just want to acknowledge, you know, I think there sometimes is tension between what is best for patient experience and what is best for provider experience. And so you guys saw me on my computer. I've been multitasking and responding to my chart messages from my patients, because I have a few who like message me multiple times a day for every little thing, diligently review my clinic notes that I write about them and then edit them and send me their feedback on what I wrote or did <laughs> not write accurately. They're very <laughs> empowered patients, which I appreciate. Um, you know, I think for many of us providers who are especially on the outpatient clinic side, just the volume of stuff coming in mm-hmm. to the in-basket is enormous and we haven't even activated all the patients we want to on my chart. Um, so I think one of our biggest strategies and what we're gonna have to work through over the next six to 12 months is how do we create workflows and team-based care where we are absolutely empowering our patients, having them reach out to us, having them have their needs met but not having all of that work fall on the provider. Um, and so I am excited because in partnership with IT, we actually are in the process of hiring an ambulatory associate CMIO. Um, we fingers crossed our Canada accepts the offer that has been made. And I think you know business number one is really gonna be cracking this nut. How do we leverage the technology to make the workflow easier for providers, to get through clinic, to not have hours of charting at home to still have the patient's needs met, to leverage all of our medical assistants, clerks and nurses to do as much of the low hanging fruit that they can and really leverage our providers for much more sort of advanced clinical decision making. So I'm hoping by our next QPSC report that we'll have sort of the inklings of what that process looks like. Um, But it's definitely painful until then.
7: Trustee
4: Jensen. So then, Dr. we'll. When, when my chart is in place, right now you get these emails directly from the patients.
11: Is that right? They, we've actually, we wanted to prevent that. So the routing scheme is that all messages go straight to our nursing and medical assistant pool. Okay. I think where the gap is, is that you know, I don't know that we've trained our staff on how to effectively respond to the messages. So what happens right now is they they see them and then they forward them my way. Okay. <laughs> <And>, okay. <laughs> their fire The entire purpose of sending them to that the That would case in my chart as well, right? I mean, it's that's exactly. another and, issue. And some of it's that. not their fault. You know, if a patient writes like a two-page email, like you know, there's a lot in there, and to really train staff to mm-hmm. sift through and. Through, like, okay, do I need to involve the provider? Or do I not? There's a lot there, and it, you know, it takes systems years to get people comfortable. So just
5: to clarify, this is my chart. This is this is oh, happening yeah. under my right. chart. Okay.
11: Yes, yeah,
2: that's
11: how it. So this has been available. Since so go right,
7: go so
11: not all of our patients have signed up, but the ones that have, it's it's open, it's available. They have the app on their smartphones. They log in. They email us. We have about
5: 1,500 patients, I think, yeah. that
4: are. And yes. these yes. are mostly so. the
5: centers, I
4: think said, so. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really. A, as right. we talked about earlier, we talked about the patient experience. You know, in one of the articles, and we had yeah. this discussion. I mean, that's an opportunity, right, to get more information about the patient experience, not just their, I mean, not just through the physician, the provider that's providing care at that time, but the whole entire experience, either ancillary, ambulatory, or... Yes. Acute. Thank
3: you. Absolutely. Yeah, but the challenge to that is going to be what it does to the productivity of the provider, because we all know that there will be those patients who need to chat with you about my pinky hurts today on the right hand, but yesterday it hurt on the left hand, and I'm really worried. I looked it up in Google, and that means I've got a neurological problem, and now I need to go in yep. for a new test. And can you make that appointment for me because I really need it now? Do you you know that's the, that's what's driving some providers absolutely nuts about the electronic health record, among other things, and and I. You know, I hope we're having honest conversations at a system level. That that, for example, I think on my electronic health record, I believe my character or word limit is something like you know 300 words, so that you can't go beyond that on the you know each round, or um, you can't send like an emergency question in in the system, or I do know it goes to a nurse first and then the physician. So we we can't. I think it's great that we're opening up to the information flow about what patients need and experience. We have to juxtapose that with what is the provider going to do with
11: that. Does that resonate for you? Absolutely, and I think that's where speed is of the essence. Right, this is new for our system. We are learning every day but I think we need to sort of be really fast about taking in those learnings and then pivoting and making adjustments and modifications um, to control the information in a way that is useful both for the patient, obviously, in their care at the end of the day, but also all the users.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a question. Uh, yes,
2: trustee yeah. Ben. Well, if I had a question about the patient quality, the prime and quick met- metrics. Of- uh, what there was, I mean, I don't know if you can clarify for me. Uh, is, there, uh, is there, is there, is the incentive changing in the sense that if you meet your targets, where you used to get incentives or extra if you met some of your prime targets, is there going to be penalties now if you don't don't meet, and is there a fiscal? implications and I I thought I heard that that was going to go into effect like 2019,
11: 2020. Yeah, so I'll um, I'll just jump ahead and then I'll come back to those slides. So for priming QAP, nothing has changed for this fiscal year about either one of those programs. So Mm -hmm. just like last year, we get paid for every metric that we hit we don't get paid for metrics that we don't hit. There is a select number of metrics called the high-performance metrics where if we exceed a certain threshold above and beyond what the target is, we can get sort of extra credit money, if you will, that can
2: help. ER, Level two trauma, ETA six minutes.
11: Um, Level two trauma, ETA six minutes. And that can help compensate for Mm -hmm. metrics where you didn't hit the target. Um, And then Tanmira, you're obviously the expert sitting right next to me, so feel free to jump in. But the one thing that is happening is for QIP, we couldn't do the adjustments, right? So for QIP, you know, QIP, whatever the target is, the target is. We know for almost almost every single metric our performance is going to take a hit with Epic Go Live. Just, you know, people are learning a new system. If you forget to click that button for the first month, that affects your performance. Mm-hmm. And so QIP, you know, the state doesn't care It is what it is for Prime. Um, it had been somewhat grandfathered in, but the state allowed... Systems that were launching in the EHR to apply and reset their baselines, so that you could still, you know, say, oh yeah, we were at 90th percentile in our legacy mm-hmm. system. Now we're at 80. Let's make the target based off of that 80 and not that 90, for oh, example. Okay. The downside of that, though, if you do that, is then you are not eligible for this high-performance pool of extra credit money. So the, you know, quality team has been really diligent petitioning to the state, doing analyses to figure out, mm-hmm. does it make sense for us to do this draw all metrics, mm-hmm. some metrics or not? Um, but it is a numbers game to figure out how do we optimize that for our system. And right. then the entire program is being overhauled for 2021. Okay, okay. because for the high performance thing, we have been getting like 105% and more. Yeah, we got about $2 than million than dollars last year through the high performance mm-hmm. pool. So, you know, if we are not eligible for that mm-hmm. and then not sort of exceeding targets on things that we didn't hit, right, it could definitely. Thank yeah. you that. Um, so, just to go back to the dashboard, two other things that I did want to highlight for the group. So, eConsult, we don't have data up here, but um, it is live. So, you guys have been hearing me talk about eConsult for years now. As of September 28th, we are live on eConsult for every single specialty at Alameda Health System other than orthopedic surgery. And just to give you, um, to to, I'll give you 30 seconds of warning that I'm going to ask you to share an eConsult surgery or um, eConsult story from the GI specialty provider side if you sure. have any examples. I think from the primary care provider side, it has just been universally amazing, and we've gotten such wonderful feedback. We still have to optimize, we have to do a lot of training and coaching on how the referring provider can make the question better, um, you know, feedback to the specialist as well. But just to give you an example, I saw one of my primary care patients in clinic on Tuesday. Um, she's been having some very puzzling symptoms, and actually, Dr. Bohr did her um, operative biopsy in the OR on these very interesting sort of nodules. Came back that she has. Uh, metastatic lung cancer, probably. So I discussed and disclosed that diagnosis with the patient. Um, obviously, really vulnerable. No one wants to know. You know, you have a cancer diagnosis. What's What's going to happen? And so I put in the e-consult to He-Monk. Um In our legacy systems, I would have put in the order. I wouldn't have trusted necessarily that that order is going to get to the referring provider in a timely fashion. So I would have probably also either emailed Paige, or you know contacted one of our oncologists to let them know, hey, there's this patient, then they would have to like go in, find that initial order, or talk to the referral coordinator. So it's basically like, a, you know, you have to initiate three pathways, hoping one of them works. In this case, I just did the e-consult. I know it goes straight to the provider. Dr. Knopf looked at that, answered it within 15 minutes. You know, said, okay, I, you know, this is obviously a very high risk patient, overbook them for this date. The scheduler got that instant communication. Within 30 seconds of the scheduler getting it, the patient had the appointment. And before I even finished clinic and finished my note, I could see, okay, it's been taken care of. I got the award in my in basket. The um, patient had the appointment, and I knew the patient was notified. And I didn't have to worry about it. And that process took, you know, 30 seconds for me to type out. So it was just amazing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, e-consult is one of my favorite things. It's a double-edged sword because there's so much volume that comes through um, the end baskets and for speaking as a gastroenterologist, we're one of the highest referred to. All that being said, the nightmares of not knowing what's out there. Uh, uh, subsist for all of us who practice in this system and for, for me now I can know actually what the inbox is. I just looked, opened up my inbox so my team, thank goodness they're doing their work, good for them, has cleared out the e-console inbox and it was full of 20 this morning. So, so those would previously have taken uh, in a paper system week two weeks with questionable fidelity. Uh, as to whether they would come. So you can, you can answer questions in real time, and, and, and better yet, track uh, which, which is the good and the bad. It's, so it's always accessible to you, which is, you know, so it, it's, it's always there, but, but, but it allows us to track on behalf of our patients. And that, that part I'm very ha- happy about. The workload I am not. <laughs> Fair. Fair
9: <enough.
11: laughs> um, and then the last metric on here, just to highlight on the red, it's postnatal care. So this was one of our prime metrics that we've had for several years now. Um, it has been declining, and you know those of you obviously have been tracking for a women's service line, we are working on improving the entire service line and their outpatient access and outpatient volumes in addition to LND. So we are actually, I just had a meeting earlier this morning launching a multi-pronged Kaizen process that involves operations, ambulatory and our entire OBGYN department because as we've been doing root cause analyses <coughs> we've been finding just Numerous points of failure: how patients access us by phone, how we get referrals, how they're scheduled. There's lots of inefficiencies and bottlenecks, which you know I think Epic just highlights those inefficiencies in some ways. So that department, particularly, has experienced a lot of sort of rough moments through this go-live. So we're excited to actually look at the workflows and fix them, um, and really get access up for our, our most vulnerable patients who are, who are pregnant and really you know starting starting new lives. Um, for priming QIP, the only highlighted thing, it's not meant for you guys to look at the stuff, but just want to point out how much green there is. So this was the September dashboard. It's the November dashboard, but it reflects data through September, so it does not reflect post-EPIC data. Uh, But at that time, already, 46 of our 57 prime metrics were at goal, and 20 out of 20 QIP metrics were at goal. And this is with the higher targets for every single one of those metrics. So this is amazing. It's sort of the best performance we've had this earlier in the year in the history of these programs, which is super exciting. Um, expect more well once we get the post EPIC data, that's my caveat, but just so proud of the teams. And I think this really reflects the infrastructure that, you know, in partnership with IT, BI, quality, and all of the clinical and operational champions that we have been building, um, because we have, you know, as I've mentioned, working groups behind every single one of these metrics, and the fruits of that labor are really paying off.
12: Paul, can you
0: uh, comment on, and I know you're so good with numbers, but I'm putting you on the spot. Those 46 of 57 translates mm-hmm. to how many dollars?
11: Um, it is on here. I just can't. Or maybe it's in there. I, just, not, I
0: can't, I can't um, see it.
11: 27 million for Prime, and it looks like 30 million for QIP. Wow. So about $60 million.
0: About $60 million.
11: In total, and then the Prime... Um, we're not at target for about 5.9 million of it okay. so far in the year, but okay. optimistic, obviously, by the end of the year, we can recoup.
0: Thank you. I hope everyone heard that.
11: It's nice when people pay you for doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that just two spotlight efforts. The first is obviously our Sapphire Epic rollout, which has been on everyone's mind. Um, I think globally and ambulatory went, Really well. There are obviously hiccups that we're still working through, and you know, as I mentioned, really thinking about how do we support the providers and all of the end users to make that experience as efficient and as easy as possible. This is a sample dashboard. So we have dashboards for sort of every type of leader, as well as for frontline providers. Um, I will say that you know, I think we're finding similar to. Um, Dr. Ingenia's presentation that the data the data is just garbage in a lot of areas and a lot of it is because if you don't know where you're supposed to document or how you're supposed to document or where the data comes from, it's hard to make sure that is accurate. So at least in ambulatory, we are starting with our leadership team, uh, with all of the sites as well as system leaders on a weekly basis to start dissecting out this data. So I have clinical leaders, medical directors who audit um, parts of this, and they'll just take okay this you know says this. I'm going to pull up the record. I'm going to pull up the chart and track down where is it accurate, where is it not. And that process, as tedious as it is, is sort of the only way to make this data accurate. So I really, you know, um, I'm not sure what's happening in all of the other SBUs, but I think it's going to be a multi-pronged effort that requires all the clinicians and operational folks really getting into the data that's behind this and ensuring its accuracy. Because it's, you know, it's, it's not an IT fix. Like, IT doesn't know how I provide clinical care and how I'm treating the patient. Um, but it's going to take us a while to get to sort of better data. Um, and then the last part was just really about the dental clinic. I didn't have slides prepared, but you know, as we discussed in um, closed session, we are overhauling some of our dental services and really trying to realign what services we provide and make sure that they match the needs of our community. Demographics, as we all know, have changed a lot throughout Alameda County, um, both in terms of the patient population that we serve, but also what their clinical needs are. And so I'm really pleased to announce we have a new chief of dentistry who's going to be starting in January, Dr. Charmaine Ng. She comes to us from Right 360 and She's really a leader in dental integration. So some of the amazing pilots that she's done in her current role are bringing, you know, they serve a clientele that has high- of substance abuse, so she launched an entire program where they're screening for substance use and treating it in the dental clinic in partnership with some of the medical providers. On the flip side, we also know patients with certain chronic diseases like uncontrolled diabetes, oral health is much more poor and they're much higher risk of infection. So they have integration on the medical side where all of those patients get warm handoffs to dentists and sort of thorough evaluations. And so we're really excited as she comes on board to relook at how are we providing services, how are we optimizing that integration piece. Um, and I'm excited and hope that this can be a model for integration across other primary and specialty services because that is clearly the future of healthcare.
0: Can you make comments on the educational piece um, which was previously discussed?
11: Absolutely. So as a part of that, you know, we know that our dental services both at Eastmont and at Highland and you know, potentially other sites in future state are going to need significant overhaul and so we are looking at how we also incorporate trainees into our current process and improve the supervision and experience of all of our trainees so that while they are learning the clinical side, they're also being actively supported and have um, a robust learning experience during their rotation. So to enable some of this restructuring, our oral surgery um, residency is going to continue and we do have some changes in leadership on the oral surgery side that we are partnering on with the University of Pacific um, who helps us operate this program. And then on the dental side, we will be taking a one-year hiatus for our dental residency to allow the restructuring and then plan on resuming um, when we have the appropriate attending supervision in place.
0: So for clarity, the current residents will complete out their term on June
5: 30.
11: Correct. So our current residents are here for the remainder of the academic year. Um, so this should not disrupt their education at all. Excellent. New applicants for next year have already been notified that okay. you know they should apply to other programs so that they will also not be disrupted with this change. And we fully anticipate bringing attending dentists, staff dentists on board to cover all of the clinical services and have that in place before July one, so that there's no disruption to clinical services.
2: Excellent.
7: Okay. Good plan. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Dr. J. Uh, Palav, just as it relates to the earlier question about community engagement and patient engagement i know that you have had a number of activities in the ambulatory sbu throughout the system uh, i would appreciate if you can share with the board especially with uh, dr Bouquet, question in terms of community engagement i know specifically about the homelessness board as a governing uh, structure for FQAC. so you can share with us, where you are with this, what 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 have we learned from this, and also about the patient advisory council that uh, happens in various languages, if you can share with the board those stories. These are very important stories.
11: Absolutely. So, you know, I think there are numerous activities that involve patients in am- our ambulatory SPU. I think the two most prominent Dr. Jamaluddin alluded to, one is that as part of our FQHC status, we do need to have a homeless co-applicant board, which all of you are very familiar with, um, with that governance So we've gone through some different iterations in collaboration with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless, and our most current board has community members as well as patients from our organization that serve on that board, and and they direct us. You know, They are engaged, they help us get better, they make sure that we are meeting the mandates of serving the homeless patients as required to by our HRSA status. Um, In addition, through seed funding that we got from PCORI over various cycles, we have three patient advisory councils here at this campus, Mian speaking Spanish-speaking and English-speaking um, that include patients who speak those languages, provider champions, staff champions who meet on a monthly basis and provide feedback you know, to the patient experience, how to make improvements, as well as take on projects for that improvement. Um, One of our patient champions from that actually just applied for employment with Alameda Health System because she has had such a great experience on that board, so may need to move from the patient to employee category by the next meeting, Um, but it's been really amazing. And then I think, you know, there's so many informal ways, and I'll ask Holly to join in if she Wants to share any of the examples, but you know, definitely as we do our various PDSA's that I've presented here before, you know, I think the voice of the patient is definitely first and foremost. So, just on Monday, we had our primary care operations council. We have uh, many pilots that all of the primary care clinics are doing to improve sort of the registration front office and then clinical back office communication and partnership, especially post Epic go-live. Since for the first time ever, we're all on the same system. You know, the front used to be on Sorian before, the back used to be on NextGen. It may as well have been the Berlin Wall for what everyone was concerned, um, and so now we can actually communicate and chat with each other. And. I was so impressed, you know, we didn't give people this instruction, but every single site surveyed patients about their PDSA cycle. So the changes, they did patient surveys, they got feedback, um, and it was shocking because in a lot of areas, the patient feedback was totally different than the staff feedback, and so, you know, we don't, we don't always know what the patients are going to feel and think, and I think we make assumptions, and the more we incorporate that voice, um, the stronger it makes us. And then Alex Diaz, who's in, you know, the Department of Medicine, does, has just organized a really great... Um, I think it was for the Los Muertos community outreach event. And our Newark site goes to local community fairs and health fairs throughout Newark all the time. So I think there's a lot of sort of community outreach efforts as well that, you know, various sites and and leaders are engaged in.
0: Trustee Jensen.
4: Can you, um, with regard to the patient, are they called patient experience council?
11: or Patient advisory councils. Are
4: those open to the public?
11: That is a great question. I'm not sure Go if to they... Do you with me and the board? Well, no, I'm sure we would. Have. Yes. I was like, I don't know if they allow random people to walk in. But yes, if the board ever would like to attend one, just let me know. And I'm happy to connect you to the leaders of each group.
4: Absolutely. And, and who are the, the leaders? And who... And and do, they, do um, other staff besides the leadership? Generally,
0: there. And these are the things that could come out in the patient affairs landscape report that will be coming to us in a month or two. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, uh, the, 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 the request is to create a kind of a global overview on how patients interface with our system, uh, we, which we weren't able to give at, at this month. A structured
7: way, you yeah. know, just mm-hmm. uh, yeah. what you would yeah. like All to have a structured way yeah. to have the, so the voice of the patient. Engagement. The landscape of how
0: we do these are these individual committees? Is there an overview? oversight body? How are they coordinated? And that's, uh, I think, what Delvecchio was alluding to. They're trying to build that report for us.
3: And uh, Trustee Jensen, I, I went to the Latino Patient um, Advisory Council, and it was just a beautifully done you know, experience for people, a, a place where they could talk about, how do I get access to such and such type of care, to I had a wonderful time with so-and-so, and how do we acknowledge them? Really, just exactly what we want to see done. Um, so if you can go, that would be wonderful to arrange. Yeah.
0: And the question is, how do we scale these things up? Yeah, or, exactly. Uh, and how do we organize with you is exactly your question.
3: Mm-hmm. My, my question would be, you know, it's great that we have a council for the Latino community. And then the question becomes, does does that get replicated at each of our, say, satellites, can we do that? Because you can well imagine someone coming all the way from South County to meet here at Highland is a big thing. So what about Newark? What about you know, the wellness centers? Are those places where we might want to think about doing something like that eventually? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, thank you for your report, Dr. Barbaria. So one question before I ask you the question. So if you, if you read the blogs, the talking heads, the, the thought leaders on, on electronic medical records and Epic in particular, there's suggestion that for every one hour of patient contact, two hours of charting. Can you comment on that with regard to your experience and how do we, how do we moderate this fact uh, when we're managing our workforce and provider burnout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think that, as I alluded to, you know, especially with some of the myChart and InBasket messaging, that this is the puzzle that we have to solve, and I don't—we have to solve it imminently. We can't wait to solve this two years from now, three years from now. Um, I think, in my personal experience, the ratio hasn't been quite as bad as one hour of patient care to two hours of yeah. charting, but it certainly has been slower than, yeah. you know, where I was with Epic. Some of that is, is me. I watch some of my colleagues, like Dr. Jenny Cohen, who's super speedy, and I just am not clicking through and and as facile with. Epic um, quite yet, but I think part of it is that we actually have data from the system. So our manager dashboards and ambulatory at least, so we have metrics on how often are people logging in after hours, how much time are they spending in the pre-charting function, how much time are they spending in the charting function, and you know the work in collaboration with our um, CMIO leaders, who I think you know there are best practices in the industry. How do you make this easier so that people... Mm-hmm really can go home and spend time with their kids and their family is how do you automate or offload as much of it as you can and I think that data is critical we can't make decisions without data so if we look at the data and there's clear pockets folks who are struggling or workflows that seem to take longer than others I I think these are fixable problems but it you know it takes time and it requires us to be nimble and fast about fixing them
0: thank you at your last uh, presentation on July 25th your top concerns were number one epic and number two culture uh, do you have any amendment to your uh, rank list of concerns?
11: I think I would actually keep them the same. you know I, I epic for all of the things that we talked about, there is a lot of optimization and improvement that we need to do, and I, I do I think there's a way to do it in a way that meets everyone's needs. so i am I am excited about that work, even though there's a lot ahead of us. Um, I think in the culture, you know we still continue to have some of these pockets where we're really struggling. We're struggling to put the patient first. Um, or at least on the same par as the provider needs and other areas, and really prioritizing quality and safety, as you guys have heard me talk about today. And I, we need to figure out a way to keep that at the front of our minds. Okay.
0: Thank you for your, you and your team and uh, your good work that we will close out item E and uh, I'm going to take chair's prerogative because we're at ten minutes to go. I'm going to humbly collapse items F, G, and H into one report by our VP uh, of quality. So that's the patient safety and regulatory affairs. He smiles at me, which is not a habit. He he knows all this stuff. Regulatory affairs and the true North metric dashboard. This is, trustees, this is all in your packet. I'm presuming that this has all been read. Uh, Dr. Hussein do you think you can take us through a three to five minute run uh, so we can get out on time across these three elements patient safety
12: regulatory affairs, and True North uh, the highlights? You always challenge me Dr. Bacat. Yes sir Um, to up my game at every single one of these meetings Mm. Um, so hopefully you'll have noticed that we have the same structure so hopefully that'll make the review easier so I'll begin with the True North metric dashboard we continue to um, Uh, integrate both the STEAM framework with access quality and safety, and um, for access, I want to call out the superb work that the um, operations teams are doing around um, uh, throughput in the hospital. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, commitment through the throughput committee, um, steered by Dr. Tournabene and Janet. And that's now beginning to reflect with consistent results for the last several months, both in terms of length of stay, as well as median admit to decision time. And I don't want to, um, through the rapidity of this review, diminish the the great amount of work and continuous focus that takes. the care management team has added avoidable days, um, and that's another way of tracking whether or not there might be <clears throat> opportunities to facilitate the length of stay. Uh, quality, you heard Dr. Dr. Hussain,
0: can I ask you one thing about avoidable days? Yes. On the dashboard on page 183, there's a baseline of 682, and then the FY target says 19, oh. colon, 12. So I didn't understand
12: how to interpret Neither do I. Got it. Um, okay, mm-hmm. but that will be corrected for next time. Okay, thank you. Um, but I should, but the current performance does exceed the targeted baseline. I think it was a ten percent reduction. Okay. Um, for quality, uh, you heard out uh, the report out on QIP and Prime, and some of the work we'll need to do anticipating um, some declining performance uh, with the new um, EHR. Um, readmissions um, is not at goal but improved to last year. The drivers are patients who are admitted with sepsis as well as intoxication by drugs as you imagine these are difficult patient populations. Our hospital acquired infection index continues to go down and our harm index um, while for the year is in green. Um, There were two patients, complicated patients, who had some uh, complications with their surgery and those cases are being reviewed um, in peer review. Uh, you heard about CG caps on the H cap side for patient experience in the hospital. Year to date, we're at goal. There was a decline in the um, care transitions domain, and the care transition team is working on ensuring that they um, re-adhere to their standard work, which is to do discharge rounds. Um, On the patient safety report during closed session, uh, we had a detailed discussion about the one reported event, the unanticipated mortality, which has undergone um, a root cause analysis and for which um, multiple interventions have already been put into place. um, uh, uh, Using our system science learning and just culture approach. And then in terms of the regulatory affairs report, uh, you will have noted note that there were two reportable events, one of which was the, um, uh, the case reported uh, in the patient safety um, report. But the most important thing that I want to uh, share is that uh, the work that was uh, um, shared here in the full board meeting last month about um, the core CMS uh, survey, um, that that work uh, continues to be sustained primarily. Um, with focused attention at John George, with a weekly QAPI meeting that engages all of the leaders, and um, we are optimistic um, about our continued success there at that facility.
0: Excellent. You were able to do it. You summarized three agenda items in five minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Trustees, any questions for the good Dr. Hussein? With that, we will close items F, G, and H. We'll move to item I, the tracking calendar. This is our last meeting of the year for uh, both the QPSC and the board, so forecasting for next year. How about we move the patient affairs landscape to January? That gives us two months. And hopefully, yeah, that, that'll, that'll, that'll be enough. In, uh, in follow up to uh, uh, a discussion about LGBTQ, um, uh, our CNE, Janet McInnes, and our ACMO, uh, Felicia Tornabene have agreed to give a follow-up on those things mm-hmm. how about February for perfect. next year is perfect. that acceptable That's perfect. and then in March maybe we'll bring back around um, some provider wellness uh, issues which have been stewarded by the good Dr. Jean Hearn back there in the corner so um, with that we will close out item I any uh, sorry before I close up uh, trustees any other uh, advice to special reports you would like to hear with well, that Actually,
7: yes ma'am
4: um, I don't know whether it would be more relevant here but I, I think the whole discussion that we had um, some time ago that um, related to Dr. Ingenio's um, report about 5150s and about those, the issues of how, how it actually works, who places it, who lifts it, that's where. A,
0: that's a great, yeah. To help us understand. Yeah. Exactly. Who would take that one on, Dr. J?
4: <laughs>
9: <laughs>
0: okay, uh, it's basically no, it's, 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 an, it's another well. landscape yes. kind of thing the landscape of 5150 for Alameda county uh, why is our practice divergent from Contra Costas? what are the operational things Dr. tornip good raising our hands so so
7: and what are the Dr. Under- she was at Contra Costa. <laughs> she yeah. was at Contra Costa. Yeah, just so,
10: clarifying, at Contra Costa, the, the ED physicians did not place her or drop the 5150. So uh, at the at the county okay. hospital. I can't speak to John Muir, but my okay. recollection. And, and so Dr. Ingenio and I were just talking about wanting to clarify that and okay. bring that back yeah. anyway. Okay. So I'm happy to work with Dr. Siddhartha on mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Wonderful.
0: Do you think April is a good en- long yeah. enough time? So let, let's put the, thank you, that's a great, get the
4: like some numbers too of our of the Alameda County numbers you know and we know that Alameda County probably compared to to other rural counties would have much more
0: so different. the comparative data the landscape all yeah, those kind exactly. of things. I think that's a great great solution okay. with that we will close item A as uh, I uh, item J legal counsel yeah my, my general counsel so the committee met in closed session and considered the conventional reports of the two medical staffs and approved those reports but took no other action. Excellent. With that, we close Item J, and that closes the QPSC with two minutes to go.